you're working in in settings and this can be a prison setting or it could be a hospital setting but you're working um uh, often with you know people who have been quite marginalized um have had quite difficult experiences and might not have developed ways of handling those or coping with those in the same way as somebody who's kind of been quite nurtured in their life um and so consequently some of their coping is to is to kind of act out for want of a better description so i think lots of situations where staff are coming into contact with kind of verbal aggression physical violence at times that that can be one of the impacts i think um but also kind of observing or coming into contact with people who direct that more inwards as well so kind of like self-harm or you know make suicide attempts and you know very often certainly prison staff um often the police as well outside of that kind of setting will be called in to kind of help manage contain um uh, support in that in in the immediacy of some of those kind of situations and they're they're not easy situations to to, to deal with hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop i'm david jones so join us every wednesday morning Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Michelle Smith. Michelle is a chartered and registered forensic psychologist who's worked across a range of forensic settings over the past 30 years, including prisons, probation, secure hospital, hospital settings, both independent and NHS, and community settings. She currently works part-time as, as an associate professor at the University of Lincoln, and her teaching, research and ongoing independent professional practice centres on the development of trauma-informed ways of working in criminal justice, health and social care systems. This includes a focus on the impact of staff on such work and the development and maintenance of resilience and professional boundary management through reflective processes and systems. And I first met Michelle very many years ago when I first worked um, training as a prison psychologist when I was about 21 or 22. So really delighted to connect with Michelle and get the chance to talk to you again many years on. Welcome. It's nice to see you and nice to meet you too, David. Thank you very much and very good to meet with uh, you. So thanks a lot for coming along. Uh, perhaps we could, because that's a very interesting biography that known is just read out. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why you chose that particular pathway? Um, yeah, I mean, I know kind of the idea of bios and trying to collapse some of your experience in practice and, and academia into kind of a short bio is sometimes a bit tricky and it's I I always reflect that like just hearing that back I'm kind of like wow did I do all that stuff and I still feel quite uncomfortable kind of hearing some of that stuff because for me um in terms of my route into forensic psychology it wasn't a traditional route um it it's not I, I work with students a lot at the moment and you know many of them seem to have quite a clear pathway in mind so they've maybe taken um, an undergraduate degree that's got a kind of forensic specialty and then they go on to an MSc and they go on to kind of their stage two training I never did that so I took quite an unconventional route into psychology in that that wasn't my first degree um so I did a law degree initially um and when I met Naomi was can 
well, my second job, actually, after completing my law degree, my first one, I worked in Next because I came out of my law degree having had this pathway of I want to be a solicitor and I want to work in the, the legal system and then realised by the end of my degree, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. It kind of didn't fit. So I got a job in retail and um, just kind of earned a bit of money. And then this opportunity came up and I'd never even really thought about prison work. I'd never thought about and I didn't even know about psychology um, and got this job as an assistant psychologist. And Naomi, you'll remember at the time, um, you know, it, it wasn't maybe as competitive as it is now to get an assistant psychologist post. So um, so there was kind of just a requirement for some basic kind of GCSEs um, and some interest and enthusiasm. And I started that job um, and it absolutely captivated me. Um, and I just I kind of felt like I'd got this kind of legal knowledge from my degree, but this was using it in a very different way, a way that I'd never really thought of. And I kind of felt like I part of the reason I didn't want to continue a legal career was I kind of felt like every role I tried and I did various work placements, there kind of seemed to be this element of, I kind of have to sit in judgment in some way. Um, and, and I found that quite uncomfortable. And it felt like doing something that blended kind of working within the criminal justice system, but in this kind of helpful way through psychology sat a little bit more comfortably. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I got into it. That was my first foray into kind of forensic psychology. And because I enjoyed it so much, I kind of, figured out actually this could be a career route but how do I get to be qualified then um so I went back and I did a conversion course um at Nottingham University um which allowed me to have the graduate basis for registration through BBS and I was able to kind of continue my training then and went on to do my MSc um I kind of had to leave the prison service to go and do those and then I kind of applied for a trainee job and went back in um yeah and and most of the early part of my career i think was spent kind of uh, learning what it was like to to kind of work with people in prison um from a psychological perspective thank you very much it's very interesting the way that you made that choice because of course you're right the, the law does tend to be rather binary you, you you choose a side and you fight for it so you chose a more nuanced uh, Root, I guess. Middle ground. Middle ground. I was a fan of the middle ground. <laughs> so it's very common at the moment for services to be focused on delivering trauma-informed work. And within recent years of your career, you've focused on the impact that this type of work has on the staff working in forensic services. Why did you take that particular decision? Well, I suppose that um, I'd kind of... I don't know that I originally came to that in the early parts of my career. Um, I always felt like I, I got, I was lucky enough to experience working in kind of teams that felt pretty supportive, um, certainly with the, in the psychology departments that I, I was kind of working within. Um, but I, obviously in, in the role as a forensic psychologist through my kind of traineeship and then when I was qualified, part of the way that you develop your competencies is by doing work outside of your kind of core role so you, you're working and doing bits of consultancy with other people in the prisons um with probation service with different professionals um and I can't kind of started to notice um that impact um of working within a 
a kind of quite challenging environment at times. Um, and I kind of, I felt like that was something that wasn't attended to particularly well. Nobody really seemed to acknowledge that or put systems in place to support staff, you know, very well um, with kind of coping with that type of work. Um, and I suppose the real clear kind of research focus came much later in my career where I was seeing this with lots of people that I knew. I've got family members that are in the prison service and, and they were getting quite disillusioned with it and they were feeling the impact. Um, and there seems to be this kind of process of, you know, you kind of have to switch off and you have to depersonalize to be able to continue in it for any length of time. And I was really quite interested in that process. Um, and I, I guess I also experienced that after a few years myself um, in my practice, you know, I think, and we don't talk about that very often publicly and um, in, an, in an open kind of reflective space. So it tends to be quite hidden. Um, and so I was really fascinated by that. And um, and so when I kind of moved to Lincoln um, and I started focusing more a bit more on research and was kind of in a fortunate position to be hoping hopefully shaping kind of the next generation of psychologists because I, I teach primarily on the MSc forensic psychology there um I kind of thought well I need to embed something in there and I need to do a bit more research around it um and I I, I often refer to that period of transition where I moved from like predominantly practice into kind of I'm going to move into academia as a bit of a kind of um, mid-career crisis I was only talking about this yesterday I, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with all of that and I um, and I decided well maybe what I can do is I can make a difference um, by understanding this impact in in a more detailed way and by understanding the processes that might you know support the development of staff and how they can kind of be able to weather some of the challenging environments and, and um, situations that they find themselves in um, so that's kind of why I kind of focused in on it, really. Um, partly my own experiences, partly the experiences that I saw of, of other staff throughout the career. And then also thinking about, well, how do I make some kind of lasting difference? Uh, how can I contribute to that? Thank you. So can I just ask you a sort of sub question to that? So did you find then that staff weren't really getting sufficient support or what we might call supervision? Um, well, what I noticed was that in certain professions that worked in forensic settings, particularly if it was kind of built into their professional training, um, that was there. Um, so it was it was offered. So, for example, you know, in, in my career as a forensic psychologist, it's kind of built into part of your training and the process of training. Um, so it's there and it's available and it's it's kind of part of the conditions of your training. But that wasn't necessarily the case and still isn't the case um, for quite a lot of other um, professions that work in forensic settings. So um, so here I'm talking about kind of prison officers. You know, there's there's uh, there's quite a kind of strict, hierarchical, rigid kind of approach to the way that that profession operates. And probably quite similar to the military, I've often kind of thought about that, you know, there's this idea that it's hierarchical and you know those hierarchical structures are about kind of management really more than they're about reflection or supervision um but that actually you know when i was able to engage in sometimes just wing conversations with prison staff that just allowed them five minutes to kind of offload or think about an interaction they'd had or 
that seemed to be really beneficial. And they were feeding back that they found that really beneficial. And 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 so I think it depended. What I noticed was it depended kind of what your role was or what your profession was. Similarly, kind of um, probation staff, you know, that that's become, I think, over the years, that's become kind of much more accepted that kind of that reflection and that supervision is, is built into that profession. But it wasn't always the case. Um, and, and kind of healthcare, I worked with a lot of healthcare staff and um, education staff. And, you know, it, it wasn't always built in in the same day, way that it was for kind of psychology professionals. And that that really interested me because I, my question was, why? Because we're all working in the same environment with the same people, with the same demands, with the same impact. So why, why, why am I afforded, you know, the kind of luxury really of, of getting an hour a month or a couple of hours a month where I get a space to, to think about and feel and understand and process some of the kind of interactions that I'm having and the impact that it has on me and, and other people don't. I think you raised something really interesting, Michelle, in all of that, because, you, you know, you raised the fact that actually you you felt like the work was beginning to really affect you, even though you had all this space. And I wonder, you know, whether one of the problems is, you know, is if there's certain taboo, you know, there's there are feelings that you're allowed to talk about in prison and feelings that you're not allowed to talk about. Like my experience is fear is very rarely spoken about, although it's a massive um, dynamic within prisons. And vulnerability. Uh, yeah, anything that makes you feel vulnerable, I think I think there's an expectation you don't talk about. And part of um, David and I's motivation for starting this podcast was a, re a recognition that you see people who've worked in forensic environments for a long time who've become quite harsh and quite cynical. And and so how do you protect your well-being? But also when you see um, dispatchers or panorama discussing forensic services and see really brutal treatment of of patients I, and whilst you know I accept that some people go into positions like that in order to have power and be abusive I don't believe that's the majority of people so there's something about forensic services that can end up you know see the same being played out in the police perhaps um, but you you know there's something about forensic services where they don't seem able to protect the integrity of the of the human being that's working yeah. there I think and I think that's what you're really is quite brave that you've opened up a conversation about that with your research yeah and I think you know I I really recognize that um and I think you know there's I think there's something for me about culture um in all of that in that we've kind of developed forensic services with this culture of a closed door um and i'm in prisons pr prison if, you know depending on what category of prison you've got you've got a very firm boundary around it haven't you um that that might be a kind of fence it might be a, a short wall if it's an open prison and there's an ability to kind of come and go um or it might be a really high brick wall um but you've got a kind of boundary and it's it's almost like what happens in prison stays in prison um and i think you know that there is there are processes and policies and um and, and kind of legal requirements for working in that setting around kind of official secrets and you know so you have to sign that as you go in so that I think the culture around that is that we don't talk about things that that, that occur in in that in that kind of environment um and I think because of that that kind of culture there's an element where if if you'll find 
doing some of that struggle um that that equally that's something you don't talk about um because that needs to stay within the boundary of the person or the boundary of a very close team um or the boundary of the prison so you don't take it out of there um and interestingly i think i've reflected and understood that in a way that's very different now well when i left the prison service um so i was able to understand that process and reflect on it in a much deeper uh, to a much deeper level um, when i was outside of that culture um, and be able to kind of look back and go wow okay so i wouldn't have kind of clocked that then um because i was so enmeshed in it um and because you you kind of feel quite bound by some of the kind of formal and informal rules that operate within it um so i think there's definitely something around around culture and the development of culture in those settings that kind of speaks to that too thank you michelle can you say a bit more about the kinds of trauma that staff routinely get exposed to when they work in forensic services? Yeah, well, I think I think there's the, there's lots of different kind of factors that I think um, staff come into contact with or situations people come into contact with when they work in forensic settings. So, you know, the most obvious, I guess, to me is, um, you know, you're working in, in settings and this can be a prison setting or it could be a hospital setting, but you're working. Um, uh, often with you know people who have been quite marginalized um have had quite difficult experiences and might not have developed ways of handling those or coping with those in the same way as somebody who's kind of been quite nurtured in their life um and so consequently some of their coping is to is to kind of act out for want of a better description so i think lots of situations where staff are coming into contact with kind of verbal aggression physical violence at times that that can be one of the impacts i think um but also kind of observing or coming into contact with people who direct that more inwards as well so kind of like self-harm or you know make suicide attempts and you know very often certainly prison staff um often the police as well outside of that kind of setting will be called in to kind of help manage contain um uh, support in that in in the immediacy of some of those kind of situations and they're they're not easy situations to, to to deal with um i think one of the other things that i've noticed is um you know there's uh, there's been a lot of kind of experiences in my career that i've witnessed or that i've uh, spoken to staff about where um they've been exposed to kind of needles or they've um so there's something about kind of like uh, substance misuse that goes on within prison that might go in on in the community um and staff are coming into contact with that so there's an exposure to you know physically quite harmful situations in terms of you know infections that kind of thing um but then there's the other bit which maybe isn't quite so obvious because it's not in your face but um so for example probation staff um psychologists routinely as part of their kind of assessments and their their kind of risk assessments are reading quite traumatic material i mean you know there's there's a number of times when i've and and you'll know yourselves the the reams of paperwork in people's files and you're kind of trawling through some of that and and that can take hours of time um, and very often you'll you'll have kind of um crime scene photographs in there so you're exposed to reading and seeing um you know quite traumatic material really and 
and I don't think you can avoid that if you're going to really do a comprehensive job and a professional job because there's an element of reading and exposing yourself to that that means that you can really sit alongside somebody that you're then going to be conducting an assessment with or you're going to think about kind of um, therapy with um but that i think can be really quite an impact for staff as well um and i always when i do some of my teaching with my students i feel like there's a, an example that i always share about the impact of the environment itself as quite traumatic and that can impact staff so um I've kind of hopped in and out of prison roles in my career. So I've kind of been in prisons for, I don't know, eight, 10 years. And then I've gone out and I've worked in other settings and then I've come back in. And I remember a point in my career when I went back in and as you'll know, kind of gates in closed prisons are pretty heavy and difficult to navigate. Um, and I always used to kind of um, use my kind of key in my foot. My foot used to come out to be able to get underneath the gate to pull it towards me because I'm not the biggest of um, people. And, and that was something that in terms of an embodied impact from the environment that was just kind of, I was quite unaware of because it became a rote thing to do. Went out of that job for a while, came back in a number of years later and it really shocked me. It was a reflection, the first gate I came to, my leg just came from nowhere to go underneath the gate. I'm sort of, why has my leg done that? Oh, it remembers. So that whole thing, you know, about the body keeps the score. Um, there's a staff impact, I think, in the body just by virtue of the environment that I think we don't clock often. Um, and then, of course, you've got the other stuff in terms of that all organisations have, but I think it hits in forensic settings a, a little differently. The kind of, you know, resource implications and the minimum staffing and the cut, cutting of costs and, and sometimes the impact on kind of risk and risk management that that has. I think that impacts staff as well. And and, you know, when they've got to, in those circumstances, make really critical and difficult decisions um, and the, the magnitude really of, you know, kind of what could happen if they make the wrong decision and the pressure and the st stress that that can kind of leave as a weight on somebody's shoulders. I think that's an impact. It might not be so obvious as the I'm, I'm going to rock up and see, you know, two, two people fighting and I've got to intervene, but it's still a weight. It's still a, an impact, I think. So for me, you know, in terms of my experience of in my career, there's some of the, the things I've noticed in terms of staff impact. It's interesting to to hear, you know, that just that impact on the body. You know, if you, there's not many jobs you do where you get frisked going into work each day, where someone will rummage through your bag, and you know that's all that's all okay. Um, going into into Whitemore, the, there was a tunnel outside alerting you to making sure you didn't have anything contraband in your bag, so you were effectively getting shouted out from this tunnel as you went into into the prison um but also some of the older you know the victorian prisons they you feel physically dirty walking around in them because there's no, no fresh air they're dark they've absorbed all this kind of like centuries of of dirt so you just feel like you need to take a shower when you when you leave the prison i think there's a very visceral response to to being in prisons yeah. But also the contagious effect of being amongst people who are very, you know, a population are very frightened and what it's like to be immersed in that all day long. And also the anger and hostility, you know, we quite often reflect on the curtness that you might receive when you arrive at the gate in the morning and how that could set you up for being in a bad mood by the time you arrive on the 
the wing that you're working at. Um, whereas you go into different kind of clinical settings and everyone's really nice and says hello and offers you a cup of tea and says thank you when you've done something um, that's made their day easier and you don't get much of that sort of stuff within prison environments I don't think. No and and I'm I'm always really mindful of you know those impacts of the environment that we don't I don't think are always at the forefront of our awareness when we're going in and we know we've got a full day of interviews to do or you know we've got some kind of therapeutic sessions or we've got group work in a prison that's not in the forefront of our minds so it's it kind of passes us by um but I'm always really mindful if 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 that's how sometimes we might feel when we're going into work and we're kind of paid to do that that's a role that we've chosen to do and we're, we're kind of earning money from it Imagine how that must be for somebody living in that 24 seven who who doesn't get to come out of that, who doesn't get a bit of respite. Um, you know, that that's always really struck me um, as very impactful. Um, and, I, and I wonder whether there's an element where, you know, that I talked about that kind of process over time, you know, when that impact builds up of kind of depersonalization or, or disconnection, whether that's and certainly in some of the kind of um, literature that I've looked at as part of my research, um, there's this kind of um, protective mechanism, I think, that that's part of um, that, 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 you know, kind of disconnecting or depersonalizing acts as a protection for staff to be able to manage that day in, day out, month in, month out. Thank you, Michelle. I think your um, example of the gate and the foot is a really good concrete example of a psychological adjustment, something you were able to recognise. Do you think most staff are able to recognise when they're impacted by, by trauma or, or would you be rather exceptional in that? Well, I certainly don't think I'm exceptional in most things, but, <laughs> um, but I, do I, I do wonder whether you know, I was talking about those kind of when I noticed that, you know, certain professional groups that work in forensic settings seem to be afforded more space as part of their training, as part of how they work. I think I've been very lucky in that because that's been part of my training, I've kind of been attuned to reflection is a key skill. Um, so I, I need to keep operating and making space for that. Um so I guess that's helped me be able to kind of clock and recognize that impact. Um, I don't I don't know that I can speak for all the professional groups and whether they, you know, they're able to recognize the impact of their, you know, the, the, the environment or the traumatic situations that they're in. But what I, I do notice is that um, I notice that professional groups that don't have that kind of reflective process built in um, in the same way seem to um, reactively respond. So they're in that kind of uh, stress response more frequently um, because they don't get the space to be able to see that that's where they're in. And you, and you know yourself, when you're in a, a kind of stress response, you know, fight, fight flight, freeze mode, um, you know, you're so busy kind of surviving um, and getting through that, that the idea of taking some time to go, well, why did I respond in that way? And, and, and what was impacting me that directed that response? That isn't something that's within your awareness in those moments because you're in survival mode. Um, 
so I, I guess I understand it in that way, but I don't know whether that's a correct assumption. It's just based on my experience that I notice, you know, I see that more in professional groups that don't have those reflective processes built in um, as part of their culture of operating in those settings. As you were talking, it reminded me of uh, my my former colleague, um, Des McVeigh, who there was somebody who was being taken, they were, the staff team were preparing to take someone down to segregation and the staff were all congregated at the at the top of the wing, their full combat gear on, you know, the riot shields, the crash helmets. And Des said, said to one guy, are you frightened? And he said, no. And he's like, well, why have you got all that equipment on you protecting yourself then if you're not, not frightened? But something about we have to override responses within prison all the time so I, I don't think people do um really appreciate what they're carrying in as they go about their their work in prisons and and it's interesting because you know i i'm i'm a professional who's had that those processes built in like i know that that's helpful i know that's that's part of the uh, the, the kind of um that that self-reflection is a useful process for me to engage in and i can think of numerous times where you know i've 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 actively been daunted about going in to see somebody because I know the kind of reactions that are going to come and that it's, you know, very much a fear response for me sometimes and, you know, feeling quite intimidated, but having to override that. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, there's been a, a kind of mechanism of, well, I need to actively be transparent around that because that opens up a conversation with that person um, so that I can understand what's going on in the room. And sometimes that's very much, you know, as a self-protection mechanism, that's not something I'd engage in doing. Um, and moments where I've, you know, kind of felt the mood in the room change and I've been, you know, checking where the door is and checking where the alarm bell is. And um so, you know, and I've got those built in to my professional practice, but I'm not immune to that reactive responding. I never have been. And I think the other thing to say within that is that this is not, I think we're talking about individuals here as well. And this is, for me, you know, I'm seeing this with individuals and I've seen this with individuals over my career, but more recently I'm beginning to see the organisational reactive responding so this is not just about individuals this is about teams this is about systems organizations um and 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 i feel like you know there's a movement really in the field to to starting to think about that you know and, and starting to think about an organizational awareness of that reactive responding as a way of kind of starting to think about culture change but i don't think in the that kind of 30 years of my service i've I've always seen that. I think organisationally, um, we've not wanted to see that in forensic settings because um, that's an awful lot of work to change that culture, isn't it? Well, but thinking of that uh, organisational change, do you think uh, language might uh, have a part to play here? Could we use different kinds of language to help you know, colleagues and other members of staff understand the way they're impacted? Yeah, I uh, I definitely think that language is absolutely crucial um, and very impactful. And I think, um, you know, language and how that kind of feeds into a narrative that we're constructing in terms of the terminology or language that we're using is completely indicative of, of what the culture is in, is in, in an organisation. Um, so I think if if we've got you know a, 
a, a set of terminology or a language or a narrative that's about punishment or blame or um or or kind of um projection of responsibility or expectation um that's very different to the narrative that can be and the language that's constructed which is about understanding and um, compassion and um and, and a move away from labels um that that for me seems much more akin to a trauma-informed way of working um so yeah i think you know in my career and over the last 30 years i've i've seen quite a movement like when i first trained the kind of language that i know i was using um and and peers around me were using and the culture was using was all about you know reduction of risk and risk factors and um, we didn't need to see the whole person necessarily because we needed to focus in on and that that came very much from you know a lot of the kind of what works literature and the r and r kind of framework and and I can see, I remember being in that as it kind of emerged. Um, so I, I, I get the utility of that. Um, but I think what happened was that we became so structured in our language and our narrative around this, this is, this is all that's important that we forgot that there are other things out there that could inform the way that we work in a forensic setting. Um, and I think we kind of got to the point where that we just moved into this kind of metric way of, of almost like treating the people that we worked with as as numbers rather than people. Um, and and I think sometimes the language that we used reflected that. Um, so I absolutely agree. Language is is vital. And it's for me, it's about the narrative that that, that frames or sets the culture. Um, and I think I think we're, we're we're moving and developing around that, and we're getting an awareness of that um, much more so recently. Um, and I think that that kind of idea of trauma informed care um, seems to have uh, highlighted that a little bit more. Yeah, that's very interesting. You reminded me of when I first went to work at Grendon, which is over twenty years ago, and moving from an NHS setting into the prison setting. Uh, there was some, particularly when we were talking about SOTP, because we wanted to introduce SOTP into Crendon, I began to think people are trying to control my mind here. They're wanting me to learn a new language. And I felt myself really here yeah, resisting it. Anyway, that's by the by. Thanks very much indeed, Michelle. Michelle, is the, is the literature nuanced enough for us to be able to identify which staff groups might be at higher risk of, of traumatisation at work? And, you know, is there a difference between sexes, the time in setting, the experience and so on? Um, well, obviously, I'm, I'm still doing bits of my research. So I'm what I've learned is that, you know, there's there's things I know now, having done this research that I wish I'd known kind of 20 years ago. Um, but equally, I've realised that the minute you, you dive into the literature, there's so much more that you don't know. Um, so from, from the kind of research I've done so far and the look at the literature I've done so far, certainly there are key factors. And I wouldn't say that um, it's one or other of those that kind of increase risk for staff and staff impact. Um, it's more a combination of those. Um, but certainly one of the things that comes out of the literature is that kind of impact of organisational stressors. 
So, you know, the, 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 the stress that's um, part of the organization, the, the kind of uh, the policies, the procedures that create more weight and create more work and create more responsibility for people, that, that seems to be have a key impact, really. Um, and also the kind of the longer you're in a, a role, um, so the longer um, time you've kind of served as a professional working in those settings, it makes sense, doesn't it? The greater your exposure uh, to some of that kind of traumatic material or tra traumatic incidents. So that, that seems to have an impact. Um, and there's something that I'm really interested in. I've done a couple of pieces of research with students around is that idea of role conflict as well. That's a really interesting factor that seems to increase the impact on staff. And when I'm talking about role conflict, you know, in forensic settings, we have this kind of, this kind of dual role, don't we often, of, of, of kind of um, uh, control um, and, and kind of um, uh, control and kind of punishment in, in that forensic setting, but also kind of care and rehabilitation and forward thinking positive kind of what can we do with this person, so this kind of dual role we've got. Um, and that, you know, that was always illuminated to me by, um, you know, when early on, and I think this has changed a lot more now, but early on when I might have been writing a risk assessment report for somebody and then expected to go in and deliver some kind of intervention with them, like within a matter of a week. Um, and to, to kind of not see the fact that that might be a bit of a barrier to working with somebody in a therapeutic relationship. So there's something about that that role conflict that, you know, all forensic professionals kind of have to hold. Um, and that's a tension. And it, it kind of shifts, doesn't it? You know, sometimes to one end and sometimes to the other end of that spectrum. And I think that we see in the literature as creating that tension, creating quite an impact for staff and, and increasing the risk for staff. So the more um, exposed you are to that higher dual role conflict, the more we see impact. Um, and one of the other things um, I've kind of found in the literature, and I think what's been interesting for me is the fact that we, you know, it's it's kind of lent me to go, now we need to talk about this more, is, is personal trauma. So, so staff working in these settings who, you know, why wouldn't we think that because we're humans, we somehow don't have the same experiences as the people that we work with? Of course we do. Of course we're going to be working with people. That have had kind of adverse childhood experiences that have had elements of kind of traumatic experience in their backgrounds in their childhood or their adulthood um and 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 the the greater you see that and that that's kind of not supported and worked with and there aren't reflective processes within that kind of organizational kind of structure to help staff manage that you see an, an increased risk around around impact um and that particularly for me is one that I feel like I want to fly the flag off a little bit um, and kind of make it more open for people to to kind of talk about that um, and be OK and have a cultural, you know, a kind of atmosphere of it's OK to talk about that. Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to be good at your job. It doesn't mean that you can't um, use elements of that experience to kind of ally in some ways with with the people that you work with I think you know 
we've that depersonalization that I was talking about means that sometimes the work in forensic settings that we do we've become quite depersonalized about so we've got disconnected that can be a way of connecting and that's with boundaries and with appropriate management I don't mean that you know we spend an hour talking to somebody in an assessment session where it's all about us and we're talking about our experiences but I think it can be a connection point sometimes um so I found that really interesting from the literature Absolutely. And I suppose it's also making me think about the potential to offer hope, actually, in those situations, because I think people who are in prison um, often assume that the staff um, have had perfect upbringings and perfect lives and see that actually having a childhood marked by abuse and trauma meant that there was an inevitability about where they ended up. And I think actually to appreciate that there's people around you who might have had very similar experiences at times, but are actually functioning and, you know, working and not breaking the law um, could could be really, really useful. But also, as you were talking, I did want to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a nice little algorithm that could work out the optimum amount of time that someone ought to work in a, a forensic setting, taking into account their histories, the kind of role they had and so on. Which brings me to the next point, I suppose, in that are some staff presumed to be more resilient in the face of trauma than others by their employers? I yeah i've wondered about that question and i don't know that i've got an easy complete answer for it if i'm honest um i think that organizationally as, as employing organizations forensic employing organizations i think that culture idea that i was talking about before i think we've kind of set a culture over time that um that we've collected ideas about what it means to be professional working in those kind of settings um and i think that what that's done is create this almost this shield of expertise or this shield of competence really and i think that culture means that um it's quite likely that employers would think that if you if it if you're meeting targets if you're delivering what you need to deliver if you're you know seeing the amount of people that you're supposed to if you're completing the risk assessments that you need to do and you're doing all of that and it doesn't look like you're impacted then that shield's kind of working um so that you know it, it means you're competent and if something's not looking broken an employing organization is probably not going to swoop in and fix it um it's more to do with that kind of reactive responding that we we're talking about if if it's looking broken if if you've got staff groups that are going off on sick a lot and um and you need to start thinking and they're from the same teams or you know there's a kind of there's a there's a cluster of something happening that that kind of indicates mm, something's broken there then I think that employers are more likely to kind of swoop in and do something because it's an indication of culture. But it's more to do with kind of like if it if it doesn't look like it's broken, um, then that must mean that staff are resilient and it's all working just fine. Um, that I think it's a tricky one to answer that question because I don't I don't know that I've delved into the literature much around that. Um, so I'm kind of just speaking anecdotally in terms of the ideas I've kind of formed so far. Um, but what I see is that, you know, it tends to be, you know, um, responded to um, if something goes wrong, as opposed to 
what can we set in place to um, help things not to go wrong um, for staff? Yeah, we seem to spend a lot of time talking or thinking about the resilience of individuals rather than thinking about whether a culture promotes resilience doesn't it you know I was reading a document relating actually to sport rather than the criminal justice system but in there that you know again that idea was reflected that it's we need to do more to bolster up the resilience of individuals rather than thinking about how does the institution itself become something that promotes resilience and, and is a healthy place to work but so it's I interesting when you're talking about sport as well, because if mm-hmm. you think about the example of sport and you think about a kind of high level athlete, um, you know, when when something happens in a race, let's think about a- athletics and something happens in a race, which means that they fall or that they, you know, they, they don't they don't win something or they're injured. Um, that can be devastating, can't it, for them? Um, but the way that that's worked with within a sporting culture is is to accept that kind of mistakes or injuries or failing in inverted commas is part of the process of learning. Um, and I'm not convinced that we've ever really seen that kind of culture translate over into forensic work. Um, it's almost like... Um, there's a culture of you, you know, you can't fail. And if there is a failure, we don't talk about it. We just keep that shield of competence up um, and we keep that shield of professionalism up. And, you know, any of those kind of mistakes or any of those things that have gone wrong, um, you know, they're kind of hidden underneath that shield. Um, and I think what's probably more helpful as a way of us understanding, collectively understanding individual trauma as well as uh, sorry individual resilience as well as organizational resilience is to talk about it more is Mm -hmm. to make that more visible yeah i think that brings us perfectly to the uh, to the question about whether organizations take adequate responsibility for the well-being of staff and what role blame might play in forensic organizations because i think that can be potentially quite traumatizing for individuals can't it blame or the fear of being blamed absolutely and I suppose yeah I mean I've, I've kind of already said I'm, I'm very clear that I feel like um, we've developed a kind of blame culture in forensic services and I think that that's been about how we've approached our response to the people that are living in prison and, and the people that we're working with um, you know there's been that kind of blame culture of you've done this wrong therefore you have to serve a sentence so there's this whole paradigm and culture that's been set around that but I think that that's been kind of mirrored and paralleled in the way that we've kind of managed staff and managed teams and managed the organization um but that's not to say and i I probably do want to acknowledge that um it's not to say that there isn't you know we haven't moved towards you know um the idea of kind of staff well-being initiatives and and that they need to be part of the culture i just wonder whether um and i and i don't remember at the beginning of my career ever really seen much of that that was probably part way through that that started to happen um so that's a great move my my concern or my caution around that is that very often and I see this in forensic services but I see it in health services too and I, I see it in kind of social care services as well um that very often I feel like we've 
I don't know that, that this is even a word, but metricized that, like it's become a tick box thing. Um, so like as long as once a month we offer this and as long as you know there's a form to fill in to check this that and the other um that that's part of well-being you know that, that we've done that job of making sure there's a system in place whether or not people access it is a completely different and that's not an organizational responsibility and yet it is really isn't it um because if you set kind of elements up that are about staff well-being and and are intended to support staff but people are accessing those. Again, it brings us back to culture. What's going on in the culture that means that staff aren't? Because then that's not doing its job. Um, and 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 so yeah, and and I see that sometimes in terms of that same blame um, response. Well, you know, we've offered it organisationally, but you know, we're blaming staff for not accessing it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know kind of what the solution is to that um because I do feel I do recognize that there's been a, a real move culturally towards rec you know kind of like uh, trying to embody that in services um I don't know whether I feel like it's just about um that we haven't valued space we haven't valued that we don't need to give something particularly all we need to maybe allow for mm. is mindful space and reflective space and allow people to you know, sit in reflection and and think about themselves and think about their interactions and and that in itself could support staff's well-being. Um, I think I often think, and maybe it's just because I've kind of reached 50 plus now, um, and I realize that when you get to a certain stage of life, you realize that often the best fixes are the simple things. <laughs> and I, I think I probably take a similar approach to this um, in terms mm -hmm. of staff well-being. I don't know if that particularly answers your question. I feel no, like I've rambled all over. No, you haven't. I think I, I, I think that did, and I think you're right. I think there's a tendency to need to offer things rather than rather than space, and actually, yeah. it's the space that uh, that allows other things to emerge, isn't it? And where people can actually receive and give support, but uh, you know, just offering something without trying to understand i wonder to what degree sometimes the policies about offering stuff are developed by people who perhaps haven't haven't actually changed cultures themselves so don't really understand how that will be how that will be implemented but i you know i i, I wonder whether we you know do we give enough thought and attention to how serving traumatized people impacts on an organization i might david correct me if i'm wrong but i think services where they offer groups run according to more process-focused group analytical principles, tend to have a more sophisticated understanding of how catering for people who've been harmed can create a toxic culture. But I'm not sure that's very widely understood. And yet, ultimately, that's the business of, of prisons, secure hospitals and forensic services, isn't it? Uh, I am much to say, except that, yes, I agree with you. I also wonder whether... I agree with you too, and I wonder whether part of the almost reluctance or resistance to kind of draw from those psychoanalytical principles is is where we've gone with kind of um, forensic psychology and working with people in forensic settings that's been kind of dictated by that R and R kind of framework. Um, so when you look at things like uh, kind of the good lives model um, and uh, 
and certainly I don't see that as in complete contrast to something like r and I see it as complementary um, as I've read it. But, but when I think about if I was going to integrate that within that kind of risk and needs type assessment framework that we use, if I'm going to find out about what really matters to somebody in their life and I'm going to use that to help kind of formulate goals with them and to understand their risk factors, but also understand what could be protective elements and protective factors to help them meet their goals and to, to plan kind of where we go next. I need space, don't I? I need space to work with them, to think with them. Um, and I don't see that that's a, an, any different a process than kind of any any other person, whether you're in prison or outside of prison. Um, I think it's about that creation of space but also it's not just space is it it's about compassion in that space um and an understanding in that space um and i think you know i've seen when we've had you know kind of and i you know i sit kind of on the fence around the opd pathway and kind of pipe services but one of the strengths i think of of those services and the way that we've kind of moved into that within prisons and community settings is that we have thought about well we're moving away from just this pure r and r model and we're uh, and we are starting to think more relationally and what do we need to create as a culture more relationally and i think that's the thing that that, that could be really helpful when we're designing kind of initiatives around staff well-being certainly and we've spoken a lot about individual well-being and you know staff group well-being but just thinking about organizational well-being because it often seems as though institutions that have experienced a serious incident find it very difficult to recover from that and so the culture of Whitemore was really clearly affected by the breakout of members of the IRA in 1994 which seemed to be implicitly rather than explicitly acknowledged so I didn't start working there till 2003 but still that was that was very prevalent throughout my my career there. And um, Whitemore has a reputation for being more rigid and inflexible than other high secure prisons. And there were certain initiatives that got off the ground in other prisons that were really hard to progress in Whitemore. And the understanding, I think, from clinical st clinical staff and psychologists was often that this was a, a this was a, a throwback to what had happened in 1994. Similarly, you see other services, don't you, where they've had deaths um, or other other um, serious incidents. Is this something that you've experienced in forensic settings? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite commonplace. And I think it's more it's more about that kind of reactive responding. And we've talked about it maybe more so in terms of individual reactive responding, but absolutely organisational reactive responding. I, I very often, and I think I've been fortunate enough to work across a number of different systems and organisations. And I think what's been really beneficial for me is being able to see that reactive responding process across different organizations. So when I think about it, even if I think about kind of health and social care, um, and really timely at the moment, isn't it, when we think about health and social care systems who, you know, for the last, I mean, for decades, they've been under under strain, but um, but certainly the last kind of few years, we've we've seen that, we've acknowledged that publicly in a different way than we ever have. Um, and that, they, they were merged, health and social care systems were merged together because, you know, there was a, a recognition that they need to work hand in hand. Um, and that's the best way to kind of serve the public, really. Um, and yet what we still see, 
what we saw in the pandemic is that in times of reactive responding, in times of kind of unprecedented stress and pressure on those systems, that that begins to, instead of bringing them closer together, it kind of separates them a little bit and it that becomes like this kind of competition um, between the two. And I don't mean overtly, but in terms of resources and, you know, kind of staff impact. Um, so I think that's a good example of, you know, where we see organisations under that kind of pressure, uh, reactive responding, they're in fight, flight, freeze, they're traumatised. And I see that very much so in the criminal justice system, but I see that in the interplay across all of those systems. If we think about the people that, certainly the people that I've worked with, the people that, people that I still work with, um, I'm in a project at the moment where I'm working with people in the community um, that tend not to, they struggle to engage in lots of those systems. And, you know, some of their needs and their risks mean that they need to interface with lots of different systems and lots of different organisations. So health, social care, um, housing, the council, um, substance misuse services, um, forensic psychology services or clinical psychology services, lots and lots of different, but they they really relationally struggle to make contact. And those systems haven't made themselves easy to access either. Um, so, you know, you haven't turned up for one or two appointments. That's it. You're off the list. That means you're not engaging. Um, and I think for organisations under duress, it's the only way to manage their system. Um, but what, what we forget sometimes is that there's a person at the centre of that. There's a person that's still struggling. And there's a person that still needs the support and help of all of those combined systems and organisations. So um, I, I absolutely, I don't think that we've afforded enough time to research and to explore and to think about the impact of trauma on organisations and systems. Um, I think when we start, and this, this will continue hopefully to grow, when we start to build kind of trauma-informed lenses into the services and the organisations, we'll start to appreciate hopefully that a lot more. Um, but, you know, just as we've talked about kind of maybe burnout and, um, you know, processes of kind of traumatisation for staff, you know, that same thing is happening in services and in organisations. You know, they're traumatised too. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're in a process of hypervigilance. And, you know, when something bad happens, when that mistake happens, when that shield goes down, you know, they'll react to protect, um, uh, to protect the equilibrium of the organisation at all costs. Um, so I think the, the, the more we learn about kind of developing different cultures and we start to test that out, maybe the more that will shift. That's my hope anyway. It's what keeps me in it. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Now, we may have covered the, all of this uh, already, but uh, we're thinking that you completed your doctorate in forensic psychology. Can you tell us what insights emerged from that that might help organisations manage the kind of challenges we've been talking about? Yeah, so, um, so the first thing I want to say about that is that I haven't completed it yet. And and I probably I think it's quite helpful in that spirit of openness to share why, um, because so I've been doing that part time while you know, holding the kind of different roles that I hold. And, you know, over the last year, you know, I, I, I have experienced quite a lot of difficult kind of times 
Um, and, you know, there's been pressure in terms of jobs, but there's also been kind of personal things that have happened. And in the spirit of I don't want to reactively respond in this, what feels to me like a very impactful and meaningful piece of work that I'm doing, um, I figured that that process of reflection would be really helpful for me. So I've taken a little break. So I'm not out of it. And because it's embedded into everything I do, I never stop thinking about it. Um, but I'm only part way through it. So I kind of want to qualify that. I'm not finished yet. But I feel like, you know, what I've done so far has, has really helped me to kind of develop some insight. And I feel like there's kind of a number of models and a number of frameworks that I've kind of used within my practice, but I don't think I've ever really dug into them um, and understood them in the way that I have since I've been doing my doctorate. Um, so one of those that I think is really helpful is something called the boundary seesaw model. And I think you've had Laura on this pod podcast before, so I won't dig into that too much because she will have explained that far more fluently than I ever could. Um, but that's been something that I've used personally in my practice, um, that I've kind of trained staff in, in kind of that model and how to understand it and then use that in supervision and reflective practice sessions. And I've yet to come across somebody who hasn't found that really useful. But I've also used that with kind of senior leaders and with organisations as well um, to think about kind of where they sit when they're working across organisations as well and where how do we think about that in terms of boundary management um, so that's kind of a model that I've found more insight into since I've been doing my doctorate and I think is a really useful kind of combination into um, how we can work in a more trauma-informed way and I think it allows a little bit of structure to that kind of reflective process that we've been talking about. Um, the other thing that I again another model that I've kind of used within practice but has really formed a, a bedrock in, in my kind of doctoral study has been the model of dynamic adaptation um, so that's kind of Joe Clark's model that kind of emerged from her doctorate work her PhD um, and I found that absolutely brilliant because I think what that allows us to see is resilience as a process not as some thing that an individual has or doesn't have um, or that an organization has or doesn't have have that it's a process that there are a number of factors that kind of play into that and it's a combination of those um, and I found that really insightful and I, again another model that I think could be really useful for us to to think about and embed if we're wanting to become a bit more trauma-informed so that idea that we've got kind of person factors and individual factors but they interplay with organizational factors and that culture stuff that we've been talking about and the policies and the procedure and elements of rigidity and but then we've also got this bit which is the stuff that we can't plan for there's dynamic factors in there you know there's there's, there's bereavements there's you know um there's, there's there's kind of family issues that there's relationship breakdowns and you know we've got an individual with all their kind of characteristics and ways of operating and ways of coping and we've got an interface with the organization but then we've got stuff that happens and we can't plan for and all of those create this process of resilience that's either going to lead to a positive or a, a less positive outcome that i think is a really useful model um and then there's other kind of models that I think uh, and, and kind of frameworks. Um, so so things like um, 
something that I've come to more recently throughout some of my doctoral learning um, about that kind of more macro level of how we think about organisational resilience and being more trauma informed. And it's kind of like how we manage public services. So it's a model of of kind of um, uh, model of, of, of how to manage public management, really. Um, and I think that that can be really, really helpful to think about. And I'm losing the name of it now but I'll remember it at some other point and maybe you can put it as an attachment to the the notes <laughs> yeah that'd be excellent we we, we can do that that'd be it's, great it's Thank in you, the Michelle. book chapter that I've written but you know sometimes you just have a bit of a brain fog you particularly no. do when you're menopausal <laughs> yeah. yeah if you could give us that that would be brilliant so fi finally Michelle I mean you've 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 hinted at some of the strategies that you've used to protect your mental health whilst working in the forensic field I think what came through was that sense of creating some space and and opportunity for reflection rather than just behaving reactively and I think that's such good advice to be offering up are there any other is there any other advice that you would offer to um, people working within forensic services in terms of protecting their mental health yeah I, I kind of Quite early on in my career, I, I I think I developed a kind of set of strategies or kind of ways that I self care, and I've I've, I've always prioritised that. And you know that ebbs and flows with the challenges of life sometimes, doesn't it? But um, but I think I've learned more. I think that process of reflection that I've been talking about, I've learned more about why it is I use those. So there's lots of things that I've always done. I've always kind of so so you know I've always been part of kind of networks and and spoken to peers and 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 had lots of different kind of social activities and um and exercise and all sorts of different things that have been part of my self-care plan that I always can revert back to and and I'm always really mindful I listen to my body really well because I always know when I'm holding tension and I know it's probably oh god I haven't used those strategies for a good few weeks and that's probably why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling um but I think more recently I've kind of understood them on a completely different level and for me that's been about learning more and digging more into that idea about um um the the, the nervous system and how the nervous system operates when um, in trauma or under kind of you know lots of stress um and that Oh, I'm still reading more about this, about the kind of polyvagal um, theory and 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 how the, the the polyvagal system works in the nervous system. Um, and so, what I've understood is that I've always had these strategies, um, and they're always outside of work strategies. Um, but I didn't know why. Um, so I've realised that there's kind of it's all about connection. Um, and it, so there's a whole load of things that I do, which is about firstly connecting to my body. Um, that that's always going to be the most important thing. It connects me into everything else that I do to self-care. Um, and that's a really useful protective mechanism for my mental health. Um, so that can be that that used to be running. Um, and then it kind of hurts my knees a little bit, but I'm desperate to get back to it. But walking, walking with the dog, um, being in nature, um, uh, sometimes that's about um, uh, kind of mindfulness and breathing and uh, meditation and but but connection to body is really helpful. Sometimes that can be it's about sensory, isn't it? Sometimes it's about my husband bought me a candle making kit a couple of Christmases ago and I've still got those on the go and they're centered. And so smell, that's a connection to body for me. Um, 
then um, things like um, connecting to mind after connecting to body. So sometimes once, because I've, I've settled my body then um, in doing some of those activities that help. Um, and then I kind of go, OK, I need to kind of connect to mind and I, can, I need to link in kind of reflective processes and feeling processes. So journaling is really good for me. Um, I'm quite a creative person, so sometimes... I'm not very good at artwork, but I'll sometimes do kind of rock painting. Um, so so things that reading, reading is really helpful, but I tend to not do work related reading. So something that I can get totally lost in some easy to read kind of um, fiction um, that I can probably whiz through in a couple of days. Um, that's really helpful. Connects me to my mind. Um, and then connection to others. Um, and, and it kind of goes in this order, I think, for me, um, because very often if I'm feeling like life's weighing me down a little bit and I'm feeling that hit on my mental health, it, it'll be a real temptation to kind of isolate. Um, so if I connect to my body and I connect to my mind, I kind of naturally take myself through the process of then wanting to connect to others. So great network of friends and colleagues that's a safe space that I can talk to about anything that I know I can ask for help at any time. Um, and then connection to community as well for me. So one of the other things I didn't mention about connection to body is singing. I love singing. I'm part of a choir. So much as I might do that and I might play music and read music myself, the connection to others bit of that is do that with others, join with others, sing with others. Um, so they're just some of the things that I have in my little kind of toolkit as strategies to help with my self-care. But I think I've understood them on a whole different level more recently. Thank you, Michelle. That was lovely. Really nice conversation. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> and uh, what a wonderful description of a well-balanced life you've just given us yeah absolutely <laughs>